0: Hey, I'm Peter Medlin, and you are listening to Teacher's Lounge. If this is your first time hearing our show, I've got good news for you. It's a really simple idea. We've all had teachers in our lives who helped shape who we are, and we want you to be a part of this show with us. Every educator we have on, whether a teacher, a coach, a professor, is nominated by the people who listen. So please do tell us about the educators who come to your mind when we say that, who've inspired you and the educators in your community who deserve a spotlight. Email us with your nominations and your story ideas at niu.edu. This week, we're talking with Mendota High School Social Studies teacher Jason Artman. Jason played a key role in Mendota joining the Democracy Schools Network last year, and we talk about what emphasizing democracy across a whole school really looks like. We talk about media literacy, rural schools, and he and his wife's quilting business where they make custom comic book quilts. I promise I did not plan this. I did not know this when Jason was dominated, but truly a conversation where we touch on comics, baseball, and teaching. I really don't know how it could get more on brand for me, but I did not do this on purpose. But it is a great conversation. You're really going to enjoy coming your way here on Teacher's Lounge. And before our chat with Jason, we do have one more education story we want to share. Rockford Public Schools has handed out suspensions and expulsions more frequently than just about any school district in the entire state. And last year, RPS changed its student code of conduct to try to exclude fewer students from class. And I got to learn more on if that plan is actually working so far in Illinois' third largest district. This peaceful, background-of-a-yoga-class type music flows out of speakers into the hectic hallways of Auburn High School in Rockford. It plays every day during the five-minute passing periods when students race to their locker between classes. Now, does it help students calm their mind before a stressful test? Does it smooth over disagreements in the hallway? It's hard to say. But Jenny Keffer says it's emblematic of a much larger shift over the past year at Auburn and RPS as a whole. Cover is the principal at Auburn.
1: Last year, we did have high discipline coming back from COVID. You know, we were the outliers for all high schools.
0: The district has had sky-high suspension and expulsion rates. Last year, Auburn ranked near the top of the state in total out-of-school suspensions and expulsions, and no school in Illinois handed in-school suspensions to more students than Auburn. Jennifer Lawrence knew the district was far too overly reliant on exclusion when she started in her role two years ago. She's the Executive Director of Student Services at Rockford Public Schools. That's why she helped lead an effort to rewrite the Student Code of Conduct. They lowered the number of days students can be suspended. She said that last year, a fight could have kicked you out of school for 10 days. Now, the max is three. And they changed the code's format to make it easier to understand for parents and students. We changed the format, the layout, and the number of suspension Mm -hmm. days. Mm -hmm. But the real meat of it, we really didn't change. Mm -hmm. So have the discipline numbers changed this year with the new code? So far, yeah. Last year, RPS suspended students from school 7,000 times, and halfway through this year, it was 2,200. If it holds through the rest of the school year, that would be a nearly 40% decline, and the expulsion rate is far lower than in 2022 as well. Lawrence says it makes sense that numbers would be lower simply because they decrease the number of days you could be suspended, but has there been a real impact on student behavior? She says yes. We're seeing a dramatic shift from the number of students that are committing offenses has plummeted. Lawrence says half as many students are displaying behavior that could get them into trouble. But how did that happen if the code of conduct didn't change that much? The district says it's because the biggest shift over the past year has been prioritizing intervention services, getting student support before a situation escalates to discipline, and if there is an incident, offering assistance instead of just discipline. Jenny Kaffer says that's true for her at Auburn.
1: I added additional staff who would be available for students to provide interventions, knowing that this code um, was no longer going to be just consequential, but also consequences paired with interventions.
0: They say there are still consequences. It's just that there are interventions first before exclusion. But what are interventions? What does that mean? Well, it could mean meetings with a counselor, intervention groups where they have community building circles, workdays, lessons and games. The district has a new partnership with Rosecrans, a Mental Health and Substance Use Treatment Center. And Kaffer says every freshman is in daily intervention to help them stay on track and foster a sense of belonging in their new building.
1: Having that daily check-in with an adult who's here just for them has made a significant difference. And now our discipline is in line with the other high schools for the first time ever.
0: And that's not to say that behavior issues have disappeared. Some teachers say that extreme behaviors are still more common now than pre-pandemic, and it can be really, really hard to handle. At RPS, they're also investing in parent liaisons who work with a caseload of students who might need extra support academically or social-emotionally. Maybe they had behavior, discipline, or attendance issues in the previous year. Natasha Harris is an MTSS coordinator at Auburn who helps lead the parent liaisons. MTSS stands for Multi-Tiered System of Support, and Harris spent the last few years as a liaison herself. She says that liaisons start the school year three weeks early to identify which students need extra help. Auburn has seven liaisons, and they each have 15 to 20 kids on their caseload. Then comes the parent part of parent liaisons. Harris says in August, they go to the student's home to meet with their family.
1: I think the initial visit is to yeah. say, hey, I'm here. When I partner with you,
0: I'm here so that your student has a successful school year. They can also connect families with resources like transportation, clothing, or food. Harris is from Rockford and says that also helps when you're building trust with a student and their family.
1: To be in a position to help families meet their basic needs is so empowering because if you can get those basic needs met, you now the students
0: can perform. And they don't have to worry about food or shelter or clothing or those things uh, while they're at school. In school, liaisons lead intervention groups and help keep track of their students' grades and behavior. Harris also spends a lot of time just greeting students in the hallways, saying hey when they walk in in the morning and providing a safe place for her kids. At her office door, there's a whiteboard that reads, make good choices. But she says once she builds up those relationships, the less she has to remind her kids to do that and unless she has to seek them out if something starts to go wrong.
1: When they even feel themselves starting, they'll seek you out.
0: Auburn principal Jenny Kaffer says liaisons and interventions are making a difference academically too.
1: Our grades are up. For semester one for first time ever, we have the highest freshman on track rate for the entire district. But all of these freshmen that attend intervention have time and space to look at their grades, to see, see their missing assignments, to get work done, like huge wins.
0: So Kaffer says increased interventions and student support won't just reduce exclusionary discipline, She's confident it'll soon result in higher graduation rates, too. All right, now it's time for our conversation with Mendota High School social studies teacher, Jason Artman. You know, wherever I am in the community, I'm not far from home. I've been quite comfortable with this
2: place. I've been in this building since it was built. So, um, you know, there's a comfort there and there's, there's familiarity there. You know, I watch these kids grow up. These kids are not much younger than my kids, so, You know, they were in school at the same time. So there's all those kinds of things where there's, there's familiarity, you know, families and you know, parents, um, and you've had the whole clan come through and that can be, you know, there's, there's certainly positives there, more positives than negatives or we wouldn't stick around to this job
0: forever. 20 plus years. Have you run into kids of former students yet? Have we reached that full circle point yet? Yeah, we're to that point. Um, I was gonna say that's a that's a real one that you have to digest, that you've been in the business for a while. <laughs> it's hard to accept.
2: <laughs> really tough to accept. Um, I'm I'm to the point now though that I think I'll be done before these kids can have kids and, and get them. To right, yeah. <laughs> I think that's
0: that's safe. You should be able to retire before the grandkids get in the game. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I shouldn't see a third
2: generation come through.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. Again, I found that thing. And, and I think that you were talking about how, like, in your community, you know, you get to wear several different hats, right? Like, you're a teacher, you're a coach, and, like, a parent. And being in that smaller community for a long time, you really get to see the community through a bunch of different angles, too.
2: Yeah. Um, yeah, you're you're referring to something I wrote for Illinois Civics a few years ago. I am. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, yeah, at the time, I was coaching soccer. Um, and I... I literally coached some kids when they were six years old and then coached them again when they were in high school because they were the same age as my kids. So, you know, 10 years apart, I have them, I have them again and, and get to coach them again. And in a couple cases, um we had a lot of success with with those kids and with some of those teams. So that was it was pretty special because it was it was kids my kids' age um who I'd who I'd seen grow up in the game of soccer. For a lot of years, um, and yeah, it, at the same time, I see those same kids at school. Um, I see them as a teacher, I see them as a as a parent, and in some case, a friend of the parents. Um, and then, and then you see them as a coach as well. And you you do wear a lot of hats. You get to see a lot of different things. And the I guess the idea I was looking for there was, um, at least in that blog, was that civic education is more than a classroom. Uh, it's more than something that happens in an American government class. And now civics has become so much more than that, um, really a a dealing with people uh, subject instead of a memorizing the Constitution subject.
0: Yeah, and that makes a lot of sense. And like, especially with over the last couple of years when we've gotten really into like media literacy and digital literacy of there's so many people that talk about just like, yeah, we're just trying to, you know, help people become like good informed, like citizens of the world, citizens of their county, all that stuff.
2: Yeah. Um, the examples kids see on TV, the classic things that are going on aren't really good examples of of people cooperating and getting along. Um, that's, you know, it, it doesn't make good news to have the story that, Everybody got along today, right? Conflict is conflict makes good news, and uh, we're we're easier to find conflict today than than looking at the classic examples of in politics today. When when you talk red and blue, and Republican and Democrat, and and conservative versus liberal, and any other label we can throw on it. You no, know, in the end, the the whole idea is that it, it works best when we come together, and we can still teach students that. Um, the The hard part is is finding positive examples of that. Sometimes, <laughs> if you're if you're living just in the news and and in, you know, when social media is is used to to be divisive, um, all those things are harmful.
0: Yeah, I know that. Like you were a civics mentor where you're helping train teachers on like the civics requirements of the last you know i would say five years or so in illinois Uh,
2: three years we did high school specifically and then the last three years and we're in the third year of middle school since the bill was passed there so it's a it's a smaller group of instructional coaches um where there were about 40 of us who started out as civics mentors now there's uh 10 instructional coaches but the network seems to to be bigger because it encompasses so much more now. And I, I the democracy school thing is something I I hadn't been a part of until uh, until this last school year. So the network is there, and, and the network of people growing together is is been quite important as far as uh, getting the idea out there that there are other ways to do things than the than the way it's always been done before, and the way it's all, and and to be divisive and to do simulations that store up historical problems instead of simulations that help you move forward.
0: Right. Cause I know that part of that, and we'll put a bookmark on the democracy schools thing. So we will get back to that. But like there is a part of your training with educators that is like walking people through how to have discussions about, you know, like controversial topics.
2: Yeah, it it's I mean, a skill. It's a skill that you can learn. Um, and it's a skill that you don't learn, you know, you don't have that course when you're becoming a teacher. And and then if you walk into the classroom and you don't know how to do it, um, it, it can be horribly intimidating when it goes awry. So yeah. yeah, it absolutely is something that you can learn to do and and it can transcend the social studies classroom. It doesn't need to be just something social studies teachers are doing. English teachers have controversial discussions. Um, science teachers have controversial discussions.
0: Especially the last um, couple of years, I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah
2: but, yeah. but PE teachers can have controversial discussions, right? You sure. Can, you can discuss whether or not a, a rule is good or bad for a, for a sport or whether the right way to the, the better way to play a game or the better strategy in a game is to to do a certain thing. So so you can you can disagree on things and find ways to to discuss that and, and come to a conclusion and, and that's all civics. That's all uh, controversial issue discussions don't have to be limited to uh, whether or not this bill should become a law.
0: <laughs> Right, and same thing with when we're talking about uh, you know digital citizenship or uh, media literacy. That's all things that don't just happen in your social studies class, because it turns out you're going to have to try to read and you know entangle misinformation or things like that in science class too.
2: Oh yeah, you're going to find misinformation and disinformation everywhere, right? Um, Right. Certain people are just you know they're encouraged to make sure that the message they want is the message that people are hearing, whether it's denial of global warming or whether it's if i get people to believe this about you know what's in our food it it can benefit you know one business over another if i can convince people that junk food isn't all that bad for you and i can find some positives there then i can benefit that industry right now we're talking science and we're talking
0: health and and it's not you know it's not red and blue voting and so again you mentioned we mentioned that you spend a couple of years as a mentor, like a civics mentor, and you got to travel around to a bunch of different schools. I think that you were mentored mentor for three counties, right?
2: I was the mentor, yeah, at one time for three counties. We had one for yeah. every regional office of education. Early on, it was really tough to get into because education is, by its nature, the schools get to self-rule and, and you yeah. get to make some self-determination. So when there's a new law, and then someone's coming around who's honestly trying to help you it <laughs> you can it can come across as the the big they are telling us what to do and of course. so so that took a little while it took a little while for us to gain some credibility um, there were a couple of years that i just kind of wondered if i was making an impact at all and then we do a ton of emailing as well um, and one God day bless you. <laughs> i got i got an email back from a teacher and they had they had picked up on something that was in one of those was one of those emails or similar to the blog that that you read, where I was sharing those kinds of stories. And it, it was really as simple as I helped some students register to vote. We only registered like six kids that that day. But a couple of weeks later, one of those students came back and said, oh, just to let you know, I did vote. and And that part was pretty cool. So I I shared that moment. And then when other teachers were responding, it was like, okay, there is someone out there listening. There's someone hearing this message. There's um, we're getting through a little bit. Um, And then as we gained, we delivered. And and by we, I mean, people other than me, for sure, delivered something like 10,000 hours of professional development in the first year or two pre-pandemic. Yeah. And then the pandemic came, and we switched to doing so many things digitally. Uh, the good news was, as an organization, we already existed, so we still were doing sometimes weekly and sometimes monthly, uh, completely free civics. Um, right, so this is only your thirty-thousandth Zoom call, then. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um. I've done quite a few Zoom calls, and and I'm yeah. certainly not the one out there doing doing most of it.
0: Well, it's, I'm glad to know that eventually you were able to have some feedback where you knew that there were in fact people listening and taking those things to heart I I was I was curious about how it is because you know for a lot of teachers you know you are in your school you're in your classroom with your students but it's kind of interesting to have the opportunity to travel around see other contexts see other schools and talk to see how people are are doing things there I I was curious kind of like what you feel like you like learned or took away from that experience.
2: In in some way, shape, or form, I've had interaction with people from places I guess I never inter- I never imagined interacting with. Some of what we've done is um, teach some online classes through uh, Guardians of Democracy Teachers Program, um, and quickly in there I had I had a student from the Philippines. As yeah, I I did a double take too, and we were we were teaching democracy and simulations of democracy and the students taking this class with us, and then all of his examples were completely different than than what you were expecting from other people. But then I started to think about it, and and democracy isn't something that's isolated to the United States. Um, he was actually measuring and comparing how uh, Manny Pacquiao as a Congressman, whether or not he's a, as effective as this very controversial woman in uh, in the Philippines, who was getting a lot of legislation passed, but was incarcerated? So it was it was totally, I, I guess, mind blowing to think that here I am helping someone with this project, and it's 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 completely beyond what I ever thought I might help someone do. Um, and at the same time, you get to see Illinois schools and how vastly different all of them are. You know, I'm in a school of 500 students where everyone knows your name. Mm -hmm. from time to time and then i've got colleagues who've got who don't even know everyone in the social studies department in their school district um, (laughs) because it's so big
0: yeah that is that is really interesting that's cool that you got to see how you know, just that also democracy in general looks very different in different places and ebbs and flows and is stronger or weaker in different places in the world. I'm sure that's something that I hope that, you know, some students in Illinois got the chance to to learn from that student too. That's fascinating.
2: It was, it was mind blowing. Then uh, so I also had a student from Japan in one of those courses and then yeah. we had people from all across the country. Um, as we we're doing those, that program is shared between uh, groups in Illinois and groups in Florida. So you see a lot of Florida and a lot of Illinois teachers in there, but Texas, Nebraska, Washington, uh, at one point, there were ten. teachers from 10 different states in one of the courses I was doing one summer. You know, everyone had completely different experiences and setups, but we were all, in a lot of ways, sometimes dealing with the same issues and learning from each other as much as anything. So the, the network side that, that has come out of this has been incredible because you, you, even sitting here in Mendota, Illinois, where I'm the only civics teacher in the school, I wasn't ever alone.
0: Is this the first school year that high schools had to offer media literacy, or was that the year prior? It's gonna seem
2: like a cop out the way I answer it, but I think yes. Um, <laughs> I know it wasn't an issue for us. Media literacy was just something we covered out of our interest for, uh, for helping teachers cover controversial issues and, and other things. So it was kind of already in our wheelhouse um, and we've kind of been pushing it. So when that passed, it was like.
0: Well, Not much change for it.
2: Yeah, well, just roll that one in as something else. Now we're experts on that, that everyone needs because we'd been, we'd been doing it a little bit. So there are some great programs out there that were beta testing back in 2017 that are now a regular part of what I do. Um, the great program from the news literacy project uh, called Checkology, which I use in the classroom routinely.
0: And what does that look like for people that don't know much about media sure. literacy?
2: Uh, news literacy project is uh, it's a great organization, and and they've got you. They're easily found online, but the Checkology program is really a software-based um, delivery where students can take things at their own pace, or you can set it up to to do it as whole-class instruction. But it's really lessons on on journalism and how news should work and. And the, like the first one I do with students all the time is is understanding the the purpose of a message because if you understand the purpose, it can help you understand quite a bit what it is the the sender is is wanting you to do, and and that makes all the difference in the world and and how believable the sender might be.
0: Yeah, I remember when all of that passed initially, doing some interviews and talking to people at the News Literacy Project too. I I believe about you know, this, I think misconception that a lot of people have that like uh, students that that grew up in the cell phone and social media age are like naturally more adept at fact checking and naturally more adept at uh, identifying misinformation. And then when all the research points to the fact that they're not, they're really not. And the thing is, it's not just the kids. I mean,
2: we're all terrible at it. it, It's something we all have to learn how to do. Uh, The only people and, and like the best information I, i've seen out there that the only people that researched it and really have come away with something that that is useful uh, have been Shegg, um the Stanford history education group mm, who, yeah. who were already studying what how to think in history classrooms but now they've got the civics online reasoning program where they studied you know just what do students do when they get information and what do adults do when they get information and what do historians do when they get information? And then what do fact checkers do when they get information? And the only ones who were finding quickly what to do were the fact checkers. And then and they turned that into a teaching strategy that you can teach, you can teach your students how to do.
0: Right. People, I believe that lateral reading. Is lateral is one reading. Is, that yeah. Did. That's and, and click
2: restraint. Right. Those are the two. Because on any Google search, right, the things that are going to pop up. Are not the first things you're going to do, but our students tend to click on the first thing that shows up, and and to get them to scroll a couple pages down and find a, a, a trustworthy source is hard. It's really hard to get them to do. They're, they want something immediate, and then yeah, the the lateral reading, get off the web page, find out what other people are saying about this source, and, and find out what the sources who you trust are saying about this source, and then decide whether or not you're going to read the rest of the article. Yeah, those are those are important skills to practice on a regular. I place. do off.
0: I do often have to be a uh, for higher lateral reader for my family. You know that they just text me articles and like, Peter, is this true? And I have to be like, Oh, guys, <laughs> <Yeah>. just <laughs> just send them the the link to the Sanford one. You guys can learn how to do this yourself. But sure, I'll, I'll handle it for you right now. <laughs> I'll fact check for you.
2: Yeah, so we so we do those lessons, and they're important yeah. lessons to do. Um, they're probably lessons that. That we need to be using across the board far more often and if, if we yep. can get a generation to make it a habit then you might do a couple things one you might combat some of the misinformation out there because it, it just might be less effective um and two it, maybe they learn a skill that they pass on and and it becomes a little more common but right now it's not common
0: I mentioned a while ago this uh, democracy schools network and you you were saying that you had worked with the illinois civics hub but it's only more relatively recently that Mendota and you guys officially became a democracy school right just over the past year or so yeah that was this year
2: we were recognized officially in September we did all the legwork last school year and yeah sent off the application in May Um, so that was something we were doing about this time last year we were pretty heavy into uh, surveys and and then the analysis of surveys to figure out what we were doing
0: but like for people that don't know what democracy schools is, can you just kind of break down like what it means to be a democracy school? Uh, sure. And
2: we're we're kind of the new kids on the block. It's something that's been yeah. around for
0: a little bit um, up to
2: 70 or so democracy schools in the state. It is something that predominantly was started in the suburbs. Um, it, it worked its way. It seemed to be popular in the South, too. And here in the the middle part of the state, there haven't been as many but hopefully that grows. Um, the, the Democracy School program is really a commitment uh, to make sure that we're always improving at, as, as a school that's, that's trying to use democracy in, in all facets of education. There's, there's 11 different areas that, that we measure ourselves against, um, everything from, from how we're doing it in the classroom to what our students are doing in their extracurriculars to how they're interacting with adults in the community to what our relationship to, to the community is as a school and, and including civic values in everything that we're trying to do. So uh, it certainly goes beyond the social studies classroom. And, and while it's, it's maybe more a commitment than an achievement. um, Right. The achievement is going through and and figuring out what you've done and setting some goals. But uh, for all of us, it's a, it's a constant level of, uh, self-reflection and improvement.
0: And even though you guys are the, the new kids on the block, like so far, like how has it kind of manifested in the school and, and the community? Uh, there's an awareness that, yeah. that
2: we're doing some good things. Um, and, and when we had to st- kind of spend a lot of time reflecting on what we were doing, uh, it, it helped that some of my colleagues who don't necessarily consider themselves civics teachers and aren't social studies teachers are finding that some of the things they're doing are are being beneficial in these ways. So um, there's, there's certainly a self-awareness for us as a school uh, of what to look for. And there's there's an attention towards trying to include student voice as, as often as we can. Um, we set goals, all the democracy schools set goals to measure themselves with over the next few years. And one of ours was to finally become very intentional in what we were doing towards promoting civic education, and and in order to do that, we had to all know what it was. So it, it's kind of been a mission for for our group to get out to to the rest of the school and make sure that that teachers know what civic education is and and how they can they can work it into their classroom, whether it's happening in science class or band and music and agriculture or mathematics. You know anywhere that that we can make it happen
0: interesting how has the have you had some feedback yet from those teachers and in, in other you know other subjects about, about was, how they are how it's going
2: you when you when you're applying to be a democracy school in the first place you yeah. build a team um, sure. I was very meticulous in in finding out who to recruit and fortunately um I knew my my fellow staff members well enough to recruit a a very solid team um, our agriculture program is very strong and uses elements of democracy already. And our band program was using elements of democracy already. So those were two teachers I went out and, and made sure I stayed in. Like um, what is
0: what is what is democracy in agriculture? Like what does that look like?
2: Well our our agriculture program has a, a I mean the FFA has a great parliamentary procedure program right, which, yeah. which does work in right legislative practice. Uh, the students have voice in the projects they're doing and, and get to uh, speak out about their interests. And those kinds of things are, are de- yeah. very democratic and yeah. that the constituents, the people at the end of the process are having a say in how things are being done, whether it's, yeah. you know, your your band leadership is going to do the same thing, right, in, in assisting the director of the band. So in those ways, those were really good uh, examples that we could, we could shine a light on outside of the social studies classroom and show that um, it can be in your extracurricular activities as well, or or your co-curricular activities.
0: That's cool. And and bringing it back to like the civics classroom, I did see that relatively recently, you would kind of talk about student voice kind of engaged your students in um, kind of a project to promote informed and, and equitable voting in the community too. We did. We did
2: some things with informed and equitable voting, and and trying to get students to understand uh, barriers to voting, and you know what might prevent people from voting, and then encouraging them to help other students vote. Um, we're going to get to very soon participate in a project through uh, University of California Riverside and Ohio State University called Connecting uh, Classrooms to Congressmen, huh. and we're we're working out the details, but we. We're setting up that my students are going to research an issue uh, and and another teacher's students. We're going to research an issue together, um study that issue, and then ultimately we're we're planning anyway. We think we have a week where it's going to work out. a virtual town hall meeting with our our representative um in Congress, Lauren underwood. and if if we can get everything to work out, then the students will get to take that work that they've done and and present their. Their findings and their thinking to the congresswoman. That would be really cool. I hope it, I hope everything does work out. And uh, there's a couple schools in Illinois doing it. There's a couple schools in Florida doing it. A couple in California, and then I think a couple in Cincinnati, who are piloting this program. And and if it goes well, looking for the model to go to go to a bigger a bigger audience in the future.
0: Yeah, for sure. Yeah, it was interesting when I was I was reading a little bit about the work that you had done with your students, trying to talk to them about, you know, voting barriers and access about how, and this is such like a rural community thing that I think you said like your district cuts into several different counties. And so like voting information and election offices yeah. are run through different things. And so they were kind of finding out like, yeah, it's a little bit easier to access some like, you know, information and sample ballots in this county versus in this county. It's, yeah, that's we, interesting. we have
2: students because of the way the, the rural districts are, you know, we we have students in Lee County, LaSalle County, and Bureau County, and um, um, the students came across some counties' websites were better than others at helping people find voting information. Um, so for some students, it was a little easier. For some students, it was a little harder. And and then they, they were looking for, you know, trying to get the message out where to vote. If you live here, where should you vote? And, and those kinds of things. And... Yeah, when they're finding out that, you know, when local governments all have different rights and responsibilities, they're going to handle things in different ways. And, you know, I think sometimes students want everything to be uniform. And it's just just not the reality in Illinois, right, with the number of levels of local government that we have. It's not going to happen.
0: I very much related to it as someone that grew up in LaSalle County, but my school district was in DeKalb County and then my community college district was in Kendall County. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Well, I, I had a, I had a couple questions a little bit about your kind of your teacher origin story. I'm always curious, was education always something that you wanted to pursue since you were like a kid, or was it something that came to you much later in life? I I started out a journalist. You started out a journalist, yes. really? Yeah, I have a
2: degree from Illinois State uh, from 1995 in Mass Comm. One of us. One of us. (laughs) I was, uh, I I originally pursued newspaper journalism. Uh, And then along the way. Did you work uh, at some newspapers? I worked at, I worked mostly at the Vedette at at ISU. Yeah. I was a student there, but uh, coming out of high school, I interned at the Times Press in uh, Streeter, Illinois. And uh, while I was at the vedette, I I did some freelance for all over the place, kind of if someone needed a story and it was local and they didn't want to send a reporter down, they, they'd hire someone from the newspaper. Signed it up with stuff in newspapers I probably don't even know where they are.
0: Do you have any stories from back then that you're like proud of still? I, no, oh, <laughs> I oh, dang, That's too I bad. wish I did. Um,
2: <laughs> I. I was working for the newspaper. I'm a, I'm a huge Nolan Ryan fan. and really no, uh, yeah, the, the newspaper uh, at the high school or at the college, um, I knew some of the guys in the sports department. So when Nolan Ryan got hurt, I just kind of started writing that he deserved something a heck of a lot better than, than his final year. Um, and they ran it. So they ran it with my byline and, and all those things. and uh, completely unknown to me, years later, my uncle had it autographed. Oh really? I do have it framed. I have it framed and and signed by Nolan Ryan with the certificate of authenticity that someone made a a big donation to the Nolan Ryan Foundation.
0: And and that thing got signed. So I do have that. Um That's awesome. I'm glad Nolan Ryan can still sign move his arm enough to <laughs> but, sign things after the 50,000 innings that he threw. And and oddly enough, um the day that paper came out, the Rangers were playing
2: in Chicago. And I had tickets to a White Sox game. Um so we went up to Chicago um my she was she was my girlfriend at the time she's not my wife um we went up there we we stayed in Chicago with some friends and went to the game and hung out at the hotel where the rangers stayed thinking we might pick up an autograph somewhere and who comes out but the owner of the rangers at the time and future president of the united states George W Bush yeah George W Bush who came out and like no one knew who he was she's nobody a- so, uh, here I am. I'm a I'm a journalism student and a poli sci minor. I knew exactly who he was. So, I walked up to him and talked to him for 2 or 3 minutes. He signed my column. Uh so right next to, you know, this column about his sports team. He signed it. The, the kids, he had both the daughters with him. Um and they were so young at the time. I mean, they were you're talking elementary school age. Um so it was really cool. I had this really long interaction with him and no one knew who it was. All these people were waiting for Juan Gonzalez and Ivan Rodriguez. And <laughs> I have a conversation and get an autograph
0: from a guy who goes on to be president of the United States. All right, W, where's Pudge at? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what, did, how, what, what did you talk to him about? Uh, about Just baseball. The at Just the Rangers? Just the time. baseball. I mean, it was, yeah.
2: it was the fact that I was wearing an Olin Ryan jersey. So he's like, oh, we have Rangers fans up here in Chicago. And I was like, well, I'm not really from Chicago, but. To him, I might as well have been, because I was from yeah. Illinois and not Texas. So, yeah, <laughs> I, I probably sounded like a babbling idiot, but it was cool. Um, I, I've still got that autograph somewhere.
0: Along That's wow. So somewhere that that same column is autographed. Someone's got an autograph by Nolan Ryan. Someone's got an autograph by George I have, W. Bush. Yeah, I have
2: I have one signed by Nolan Ryan and one signed by George Bush. The Nolan I Ryan one been... is framed, and I know exactly where it is. The George Bush one is, you know, I've moved a couple times since then, but I certainly hung on to it.
0: That's wild. And so, how did you get from there to teaching? Uh, I
2: got married. <laughs> um, <laughs> I had to pay some bills. Yeah, fair um, enough. Fair enough. I, I did a lot of other things, I, and I went back to become a teacher. Um, I was coaching scholastic Bowl with a friend of mine, um, and and got involved in education, and uh, went back to to teach government and to teach eventually teach history, uh, and that's where the that's where the impact was. I, I think in your questions ahead of time, you said, who's who's had a lasting impact on you um, as a teacher. And, and two guys at Illinois State, um, Fred Drake and Larry McBride, and they're both retired now. And and we lost Larry shortly after I graduated. Um, Larry passed away, but they had more impact on me than anybody, uh, as far as who I am as a teacher. and And if I get beyond that, then I have to talk about colleagues who I teach with now who are so inspiring in what they do. So many people I work with in Illinois civics, but even people in this building, I have great friends who, who are far better at what they do than I think I am at what I do. And, and they, they've all got skills that, that I want to take something from before I'm done.
0: That's awesome. I'm curious, like, so you've been, you've been a, a social studies teacher for, for over 20 years now. Yeah. 23 years for 23 years now on like a scale of like one to 10 like how much do you feel like teaching social studies whether it be the actual curriculum or your way of delivering it how much do you feel like social studies teaching has changed in 23 years um a lot or not so much on
2: on september eleventh, two 2001 i was in my second year teaching and we listened to the news on a radio because we couldn't, we didn't have cable in the classroom and we couldn't get internet news fast enough. So we, we listened to the radio to, to learn as we went and, and taught on the fly while listening to the radio. I don't have to do that anymore. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. know, now I'll mention something in the classroom and kids will call it up on Google before I'm done. And they're like, well, here it is. So you you can't not know something now. Mm -hmm. Um, But everything's had its challenges. Um, You know, now we have technology in front of us for good or bad. Sometimes it's good and sometimes it's bad. Uh, Sometimes it's a distraction. Sometimes it's a tool for misinformation. And sometimes it is the best way to put a ton of resources in a kid's hand and let them create something amazing and give it back to you. And um, I, I just wrote this for something, for another project uh, yesterday. I Yesterday, just doing a, sim- a simple lesson on gerrymandering districts, which is hard to describe to adults, let alone to describe <laughs> to, to teenagers.
0: Yeah, I, there's a great Washington Post uh, thing a couple of years ago where they made uh, gerrymandered districts into like uh, virtual mini golf courses, so you could play mini golf on these gerrymandered district. That's I learned a lot through that one. <laughs> um,
2: so, so to do that, I
0: started with a video game because there are actually gerrymandering video games out there, and the kids were hooked on. It. And that's all they did for one day. Like gerrymandering video games in terms of like in the video game, are you trying to yeah, gerrymander a district? Absolutely. Um, Whoa. It, it, yeah, there's it's
2: called the gerrymander game, um, and you're given a a block with so many red and so many blue, and it says help red win, and, and there's a red minority there, and you have to draw your districts equal numbers to find a way to help red win, and you just, you start with like four red and five blue on a on a three by three grid, and then the next one it might say help blue win, and you get a different you get a different grid, but it works its way up to some rather large complicated grids where you have to Eventually, right? Practice the packing and cracking that that are done in gerrymandering. So uh, we just played it for a while, and then I gave them articles on what gerrymandering was, and then gave them the vocabulary, and then called up the old maps and the new maps. So CNN has a tremendous website that's got last the last map and the current map, and you can see how things are changed. In in older days, I could not have used all of those resources with students, right? I would have had to photocopy a bunch of things and photocopy a bunch of maps and hope the different shades of gray
0: showed up appropriately. God help you if you have to use a fax machine. I don't even know if I know how to use a fax machine. Yeah,
2: so so I called it up on a screen. They had it on their Chromebook. And by the time they were done, they used a text article. They used uh, two different websites with interactive maps on it. They used a video game and an interactive PDF from um, civics in real life down in Florida, they used all of that to do one assignment. So technology ha- is allowing us to do some things we couldn't do back then. I mean, there was, there was a time when I wanted students to share information. I'd have to go photocopy it, chop it up, spread it out to the room, right? So, you know, Google Docs and, and Google Forms, they've, they've made some things easier that Google Forms made my life just miserable earlier today when I didn't set the settings right. And I, I got a whole bunch of assignments with no names or no emails attached to them. Um, but for the most part, when you use it properly, the, the technology does make some things easier. Um, and when you and when you allow people to use it improperly, the technology is something you want to pull your hair out over. So it, it's all it's all relative. Um, you know, teaching teaching is still an art and uh, there's a trick to it. And I, I think I'm a heck of a lot better at it today than I was 23 years ago. Um, I think I've learned a trick or two along the way. And, and if I haven't, then I don't want to. I don't want to be that young guy in the classroom <laughs> um, trying to tackle trying to tackle the challenges we have thrown in front of us. That's for sure.
0: That is a perfect segue to the questions that we like to just end off on, which sure. is like, what's something? First off, we'll do it as both uh, a teacher in general and specifically a social studies and civics teacher. You know, what's something about teaching social studies and civics that you just wish more people knew? Something you think is more important than people realize about it? Um,
2: that making it a tool, a, a tool for politics, is harmful to education. Uh, too often, and, and not only social studies, but right now, that's what's being done, right? It, how you teach history and what you teach about history and who's teaching this and that, it, it's harmful. It's harmful to education. It it makes people not want to do um, what some of us do, and, and and we need good teachers. I don't care. I don't care, you know, where things go. I'm I'm closer to the end of the career than the beginning at this point. Um, someone has to take up the mantle, and someone has to to do these things, whether it's me or whether it's whether it's my friends teaching civics in other places. Um, we can't make the profession so unattractive. That young people don't take it up. We got to inspire people to be in the classroom. We got to make this job um, something that people aspire to. So politicizing our job is detrimental to the people we serve. It's detrimental to the kids. It's it's offensive to the teachers. It's
0: detrimental to the students. Absolutely. And then the other version of this question, which is, what's just something about being an educator that you wish more people knew? On the good days, it is it is the greatest job you can imagine.
2: Um, you get those days that a kid says, Hey, I voted and I voted because of something you taught me, or I learned something uh, and and I learned something because something you taught me. Um, and it, and this is a coaching one, but it goes back, it goes back a lot of years. I, I was a high school wrestler and and my, uh, my first head coaching opportunity was, was head coaching wrestling. But when I was working my way up, um, as an assistant and just volunteering with the team, I taught a kid a move because I saw something. I saw I saw something in a match earlier in the day. So I took a kid aside and I taught him how to do something. And he went on to win the tournament. Now, maybe he was going to go on to win the tournament on his own. I don't know. But when his mom asked him about it, because he'd never done so before, he said, well, Coach Hartman taught me. And at that point, I wasn't a coach. I was just a volunteer working my way up, teaching the kid something. So that one meant a ton. Uh, to be called coach when I wasn't sure I'd earned the title yet, um, because you know sometimes in in some of my most influential people at different times have been coaches. I've I've coached with tremendous people who taught me who taught me a lot about dealing with with young people. Um, whether it was as a coach here in, uh, at Mendota High School, whether it was coaching my daughter in youth soccer um, with a guy who who taught me a ton. And, or whether it was, you know, my own coaches. So to be called a coach uh, was, was pretty special at that point. Um, But it it can be the greatest thing in the world. It can be the most stressful job you've ever imagined. It it really can. Um, Yeah. And it all comes down to, it's a people business and people are, people are incredibly different. And, you know, it, it doesn't matter what your job is. If someone's trying to make your day miserable, they can make your day miserable. Uh, especially uh, maybe when it's a customer and our customers are students or sometimes parents. Um, You know, if someone's looking to make it miserable for you, they can make it miserable for you. So it can, it can be tremendous. The highs are really dang high. Um, The lows can drive you crazy. And unfortunately um, for me, the highs have been better than the lows and I'm still around here doing
0: it. Good to hear. Good to hear. Well, the absolute last thing I have for you, and this is going to be a little bit out of left field. You know, we're, Juan Gonzalez once patrolled for the Texas Rangers. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I saw that uh, That you and your wife have like a quilting business where you guys do some like comic book themed. You, sort of, like, you've done your homework, yeah. Because I'm a huge comic book fan, so I was like immediately super stoked about this, that you guys have been to like cons, you guys are going to C2E2, I've been to C2E2 like 10 times.
2: We will, we will show at C2E2 for the first time. Um, she wanted to start a quilting business from home. Um, and buy one of these long-arm quilting machines, which I had no idea what it was. Um, and and one of those many jobs I did between being a journalist and being a teacher was graphic design. So mm-hmm. I would design for her, and I kind of learned how to design quilts on my own. Um, so I would design for her, and and I said to her, and, and it's, this is, we've said this many times to many people, I told her, I'm not going to make old lady quilts for the rest of my life, um, but I will help you out. I'll help you in this endeavor. So I quit coaching. And when we are not teaching, and she works for, she works at Northern Illinois University. Um, so She's not a teacher, but she does work there. When we are not in education, we are quilters. I have learned to sew. Um, I, we've made a lot of friends who are tremendous artists. And that the thing that makes us different is that uh, we acquire art from our friends. And we get it. Uh, custom printed and then we make quilts with their custom art so we have fabric you can't find anywhere else.
0: I, that's what it stuck out to me I was like I was like, okay, well maybe they just, you know, throw a Spider-Man logo on there. And I was like, no 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 no. We got like legit original art going up on here. Like yeah. this guy knows his stuff. I was yeah. I was impressed.
2: Um, I've become good friends with the chalk girl out of Wisconsin. Yeah. Um who who's doing a lot more conventions. She's a convention artist. Um Ali Garza. Uh, mm-hmm. Who's drawn for Marvel and and now oh, like it's his own yep. company. Uh, that he's working with a couple different companies. Um, Chris Enot, who's drawn for Zenoscope and and others. Um, and they've all let us work with their art. And then uh, some other friends along the way. But uh, one of my high school wrestling teammates started Comics Elite in Indiana. Oh, and, really? Yes. And they've become one of the biggest comic stores in the country. They're the number one seller of of comics on Facebook Live, mm-hmm. and um, my connection with him has helped me get in touch with a few people. When he said we were creating something that he'd never seen on the Comic Con floor, um, we we figured we found a niche that might work.
0: That's awesome. Are you a big comics fan?
2: Yeah, yeah, a what? whole lot. Um, I was reading I was reading the New Yoda series last night, actually. <laughs> um, but I've been lately. I've been hooked on uh, catching up on Arrow. And okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I did find out that one of our shows, we're anticipating we are going to C2E2 for sure. Um, we're anticipating going to Denver for Fan Expo um, mm-hmm. in Denver. And the list of celebrities they have released includes Vincent D'Onofrio and Charlie Cox. And Both John
0: daredevil, daredevil. And John and Bernthal King from King
2: Punisher. King, yeah. And um, Emily Bett-Rickards, who was Felicity and Stephen Amell, who was Green Arrow, they're all going to be there. And I'm like, oh, my God, I, we have quilts of all of those people um, drawn by friends of ours. So I just want to be at one of these where where I run the I run the quilt up the so it's like running up a flagpole. It's big photo. <laughs> so it's like nine and a half, ten 10 feet in the air. And if I put it on a table, it might be 14 feet in the air. And I want them to see it and come over and, and hopefully be in awe at, at what my friends can do and then hopefully I've, I've done their art some honor and, and put it on a quilt and done
0: it well i love that i really i hope you had a good time i, I really yeah. appreciate you making the time that we got to chat uh, teaching comics and baseball what else can you ask for that's yeah, yeah that's, that's about <laughs> as good as it gets thanks so much for listening to the show as always feel free to nominate a teacher in your life to be on our show it's how we get great guests like jason send them our way to teacherslounge at niu.edu and wherever it is you're hearing our podcast please do consider subscribing leaving us a rating sharing it whatever you can do it's the best way to help us out and get even more perspectives on the show Please subscribe to the Teacher's Lounge newsletter if you want to keep up to date with everything having to do with the show. You can find the link to do that on this episode's page at WNIJ.org. A big hearty thank you to the Northern Illinois band Kind Ofs for the music you hear each and every episode. A big thank you to Spencer Tritt for our Teacher's Lounge logo. I have been your host, Peter and We'll be back with more Teacher's Lounge very soon. See ya.